Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review, and you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you are enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech startups. In this episode of the podcast, our guest Tamir Marie and I discuss his background and how he became a geek of healthcare, the sense of pride in Israel about their healthcare innovation, we do a deep dive into Johnson & Johnson and the different branches, how they evaluate investments, the importance of partnerships to bring innovation to patients, do strategic venture arms work together, what trends he sees in the industry, the importance of diversity on your board, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Tamir Marie. podcast. Thank you for having me, Dwayne. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, in, in the title, it's, it's in the title of the podcast, it'll be, um, you know, what you do with Johnson and Johnson. But but for those who don't know who you are, maybe just a brief background, on who you are as a person, but then what you do for Johnson and Johnson. Sure. So um, having recently transitioned here to California about three months ago uh, from Israel, so I am uh, 36 years old, married plus two, um, um, let's say an avid geek of healthcare and medicine uh, way before joining J&J. Um, my, my love story with healthcare um, actually started really in military service. So, you know, in Israel, everybody goes through compulsory military service. Uh, I was a medic, a combat medic, and a medics instructor towards the end of my military service, uh, responsible for one of the largest units, infirmaries. Um, and, and sort of the natural step uh, for folks who do that in the military is to go to med school. Um, I have tried that miserably, I have to say, uh, trying to get accepted in Israel um, and doing so unsuccessfully, uh, spending quite a lot of years trying to do that, um, and ended up doing uh, biomedical engineering and physical chemistry, which was um, somewhat to be expected as I'm known to be a tinker and somebody who likes to dismantle and try to assemble things back together, sometimes also unsuccessfully. Um, so having done so, um, was actually looking at a bunch of R&D roles um, in, in you know, healthcare and, and med devices. And Israel is you know, well known to be a hub for med device innovation. Um, and while doing that, saw sort of an opening for an analyst role at JAGDC, and I said, hmm, you know, why not? Sounds interesting. Um, went ahead and applied and, you know, still here to this day. So um, a really unique love story, if you will. Yeah, very cool. Um, so so what is your current role then at, yeah. at, so, at j and so if, if I were to characterize, you know, roles at JGDC, and maybe we would go a bit yep. deeper later on into what J&J Innovation and JGDC does. I'm an investor on the JGDC de- uh, team nowadays, um, and okay. I cover med devices here in, in West North America, Australia, New Zealand. And um, normally, if you would look at all of the investors on the JGDC team, we have both geographical jurisdiction as well as sector-specific jurisdiction. So... We are, um, I think, 14 or 13 investors nowadays, um, and each one of us is responsible for a geography and a sector within that geography. So I cover med devices here. Um, we have colleagues here in California that cover purely farm and purely consumer, as well as um, in Boston, folks who do um, med devices only, farm only, and same in London and Asia and Shanghai as well. So cool. purely med devices. Yeah. Yeah. So, so before we kind of dive into those mechanics um just real quick on 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 israel is that you know we, we talk about it we've, we've had um the folks on from axelmed yuri geiger um we've had on uh the people from from memek um and and then we've also had on i think a moon is also located over there as well um you know we 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 ask every time it's like <clears throat> 
I mean, yeah, pound for pound. Uh, if, if, if we're putting in a boxing terms, you know, Israel's innovation is just insane per person. Um, is that, is that like a big sense of pride in the country? Um, I, I think so. So, um, okay. you know, there's a, a saying when you go to a medics course in, in Hebrew, which, uh, pardon the, the terrible translation because it doesn't work in English as well as it does in Hebrew. Um, okay. but it basically says a good medic is an improvising medic. And I think that is something that is sort of ingrained into you as an Israeli in general is the ability to improvise with whatever you have um, and make the best out of that. And, you know, it may not be the perfect solution uh, if you were to take a product from scratch and bring it from zero to one and from one to 100, but it does work at the end of the day. And, you know, we have so many examples of that in Israeli history, whether it was, you know, military innovation, um, healthcare innovation, logistical innovation. And I think um, at the end of the day, if it works, you know, there's no need to fix it in a sense, mm -hmm. right? It may be a good approach or a bad approach, depends on how you look at it. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the generally the, the startup scene, in, you know, in Israel has grown uh, significantly over the past 20 to 30 years, um, accounted for not just, you know, foreign investments coming into the country, but really moving that country from startup nation, which is what it was known for, you know, many years ago to scale up nation where you're seeing not just the, the capability of, of starting and, and creating new companies from ideas you've either seen in a you know hospital or, or a medical setting for for the med device industry but also in areas coming from you know day-to-day -day use whether it's the iron dome uh that we have as a protective missile defense system um to to anything else you can think of in terms of innovations that have been acquired by multinationals and you know google or amazon or microsoft or, or be it whoever it is yeah. and we've become scale-up nation where you're seeing businesses that started as startups but have not been acquired purposely right they have considered and discussed that the fact to ipo and become you know a big mature company and generate sales and revenues that would not be um dissimilar to other big companies in the world create really mm -hmm. an ecosystem of mature companies that would grow to like thousands of employees and be competitors on the global scale with with the big gorillas of the world. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I think actually, uh, Veer Cohen and 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 Memek, I, I think they went public via SPAC. Um, they did. Veer is a good friend. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, wow, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. He was yeah. Uh, a great interview. Him and his um, uh, one of the, the, the founders, uh, he's a, a physician at a uh, Belgium, maybe I forget his name. Um, but but regardless, yeah, that's very cool. Um, so so okay, so tell me about. I mean, Johnson Johnson's a behemoth. Um, so so we got to break this down a little bit uh, for the for the folks listening in, because because what I really want to get to is is all the different ways to engage. So so J and J Innovations, and the other acronym you used is J and J DC. So yeah, that's that's quite a mouthful. So let me let me yeah. try and break it down. So you know, everybody yeah. knows J and J, as you mentioned, the big big company. We've been around for quite some time, and our our former CEO, um, Alex Gorski, likes to describe J and J as a hundred and thirty something year old startup. And I think it's a really nice definition because while okay. we are a huge company, both in terms of size and and market cap, we still try to think innovatively and and sort of partner externally as much as we can. And, and this is work that has been done, you know, in the course of, of many years in the making, but even more so recently in the last, you know, nine to 10 years when J&J &J Innovation was created as a global footprint for us to, to sort of partner globally with with innovators, um, I think has, has sort of enabled us to do a lot of interesting and cool things, both internally, externally, and, and all together. Mm -hmm. So um, our, our innovation sort of, um, concerted effort um, started really around 2013 when JJI, what we call it internally, J&J Innovation was formed. And I'd say it's it's really comprised today of four parts, which, which most people in the industry would know. One would be the innovation centers, which we have uh, comfortably located in hubs of innovation around the world. So we have one in Shanghai who's covering Asia, one in London covering um, Europe, and Israel is sort of a satellite of the London office. We have one in Boston covering the East Coast and one in California covering the West Coast of um, America and Australia and New Zealand. And these are 
sort of regional hubs that are effectively created to access the best science and technology in the region. Now, you know, J&J is a U.S. company, obviously, and a lot of our activity, both on the R&D and, and strategic marketing and even the franchises sit here, right, in mainland U.S. But realistically, we also have a lot of campuses in Asia and, and Europe um, and sometimes East or West Coast that we could definitely leverage the right people instead of necessarily bringing a team from the U.S. outside of COVID days, of course, to diligence a company or, or sort of evaluate the technology. So by doing that, we're not only leveraging the regional uh, location of those hubs, uh, by you know, making the logistics of these things easier, but also just being tapped into the ecosystem by people who have either lived in that area or know the ecosystem from you know, previous academic background or, or VCs that they've known. So these hubs are effectively enabling us to do early and sometimes a bit later stage um, deals and activities with the industries and ecosystems of that region. So effectively better efficiency, uh, better, um, you know, um, terms, I don't know how to call it, but to really mm -hmm. be more effective in creating those uh, collaborations and relationships in the industry. The other part, which somewhat corresponds with the innovation centers, is most of those are co-located in, in similar regions or, or nearby regions, is our JLabs activity, which a lot of folks know because JLabs runs a very effective activation campaign worldwide, is we have a global network of incubators and partnerships um, called JLabs, and some are like JPALs and, and, and um, areas of that nature, where we have entrepreneurs being supported to launch their companies. So this is really an incubation partnership that we have with, with companies who come in, you know, pay rent, get access to J&J &J if they need to, or if they, they don't want to, that's perfectly fine. Um, and they help them sort of bring space and bring capabilities and know-how to the companies and, and maybe even, you know, support from J&J &J if needed, if it is a strategic area of interest to us, um, to really exchange ideas and collaborate and make, you know, connections with the ecosystem in those regions. So we have a bunch of JLab locations, including, you know, one in Beersen next to our um, pharmaceuticals um, campus in, in Belgium. We have one in Shanghai. We have one in New York, Toronto, um, San Francisco, Boston, um, and even including our, our uh, CDI in, in Texas as well, and, and JLabs mm -hmm. there. So we're we're trying to be you know very wide um, casting that net. The third part, which is you know JGDC, which is the group I'm in, is J and J's corporate venture arm, uh, which has been around for quite some time. So we were around from 1973. So next year would be our 50th anniversary. Effectively, the first corporate venture arm ever created um, in in the world, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. And uh, we are a strategic venture arm. So, you know, we invest or, in a sense, use the relationships we have with our um, operating companies at J&J, leveraging their strategy, their knowledge to invest in companies that could be uh, effectively what we call onboarding targets at the end of the day. So we would not just invest in a company purely for financial reasons. We would invest in a company where we see a product, service, or a capability that could potentially provide significant value to one of J&J's operating companies down the road when that asset, product, whatever it is, is in J&J's hands one way or the other. And that could be company acquisition, asset acquisition, a licensing agreement, or what have you. Um, and we work in tandem with our operating company colleagues, be it, you know, farm, consumer, med devices, to ensure that we invest in areas of interest to them that could potentially be external um, opportunities to be brought into J&J as future platforms to be sold as part of our portfolio. The last part um, is our BD activities, which generally focus around um, later stage things. So mostly mergers and acquisitions and licensing and divestitures. But I could say for both JJDC and, and the J&J &J business development folks, they are for most part in, included in all of the uh, other activities. So some of them would be tapped into the JLabs activity. Some of them would be tapped into the, the innovation center activities. And for sure, we would need their support and par partnership on the JJDC side. So, you know, while these are all sort of four different buckets, we all sort of tend to work together and try and leverage each of each of those parts to create some sort of synergy when you're interacting with J&J.
Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really helpful. Um, so the, I, I've been to the, the J labs in Houston, uh, the one that sits on the Texas medical center and it's, it's an impressive building. It's also kind of cool cause it's tied into, um, TMCX, which is yep. like a, a fantastic accelerator program. Um, it, I think the first time I saw it, you know, it, it was, it, that was my first introduction to, to, to J and J's innovation as a whole. And, and like what, what the feeling I got from my first impression was, this is really cool to see a company like J and J, um, so inundated with startups, um, because you don't see that often, right. Or at least maybe not when I had been there the first time, right? I mean, now maybe now now there's a lot of venture arms spinning out of 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 some of these large companies. Um, but it was just really cool to see that kind of interaction there. Um, so was that a strategy from like the very beginning when when we're talking about the innovation department was not just hey this is a source of funding, but this is a this this is this is something a little more strategic. It's it's the way it seems. I'm just curious. Yeah. So yeah. I, I can't necessarily speak for for on behalf of the leaders, really, because um, I'm probably not in the right pay grade. But um, <laughs> I, I can tell you that I think, you know, having worked in this industry, not just from a, an investor perspective, but you know, seeing this in an ecosystem like Israel, where, you know, we have a lot of multinationals mm -hmm. working in Israel who have quite a nice footprint, whether it be, you know, the Amazons, Microsoft's, Apples of the world, but even other and competitors like like Mctronic, really, um, where it's really important to provide a unique spectrum of um, activities to be able to partner with you and not just be locked in a specific stage of collaboration, right? So if I were to say, you know, med device companies tend to wait for, let's say a later stage development uh, stage for the company. And um, whereas, you know, if, if you're not identifying those opportunities, especially nowadays with money running around uh, rampantly in the market, if you're not identifying those opportunities early on, competition is so crazy these days that you may miss on a very good opportunity, not necessarily from a competitor, right? Even on the investment perspective, uh, like a VC could put in a term sheet much quicker than any corporate could, um, um, let's say as, as quickly as we can play and, 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 and act, you know, VCs tend to work faster and have lower uh, approval thresholds, et cetera. Yeah. Um, it's important to be plugged into that ecosystem from, from various angles. So, you know, somebody in, in a J labs, for example, which could be too early for us to invest, or could be too early for the innovation startup to be involved, could sort of raise a flag and say, Hey, listen, I followed up on that company and, and they're doing really well. And I'm seeing a lot of traffic and a lot of new hires. We should probably get, you know, some sort of an update with those guys. And same goes for the innovation centers who tend to be a bit more early than what JJDC does. And same for us for business development. So I think the way that we've structured it makes sure that there are so many touch points along the way that enables us to have some sort of visibility into the ecosystem, whether it's an area we are active in or we're not active in. And that could help educate us into areas of potential growth for the future. Mm -hmm. So... I can't speak for how this was strategized for the beginning, but I think what it came to be really is a really successful model for tapping into the ecosystem, both geographically, but also from just a technical perspective of knowing what's happening and, and seeing what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so my, my next question, uh, I don't want to get too much into the, the weeds there, but, but because uh, uh, you're going to be on our, our other podcast series, MedTech Money, so you, I'm sure Giovanni will dive into the mechanics of everything. But, but generally speaking, if, if um, JJDC makes a investment in a company, I'm guessing, I'm wondering how this works in terms of an acquisition by J&J &J and how that works on the operational side versus an investment side. I mean, is there a scenario where you don't make an investment in a company, but they end up getting acquired by J&J? &J? Are there scenarios where you invest in a company, but they get acquired by a different strategic? I mean, are, yeah. are those? Okay. Yeah. Can you yeah. So, you know, yeah. we've had the privilege of being around for quite some time and I've had um, another wonderful privilege of reporting to people who've had such, you know, huge experience over many, many years with not just J&J, &J, but other players and, and really learn from, from, you know, veterans of the industry. And, 
try to, to get sort of best practices when we do invest in a company or when we're at, interacting with a company and, you know, realizing medtech could be somewhat different than farm and, and for consumer and, and digital in general, which has sort of come into our lives in the last few years. But I think what we sort of have in our minds is always, you know, outside of having J&J's interests in mind as investors, because this is really the, the purpose of what we do, is to also try and be very fair to the industry for two reasons. One, you know, we like to play fair, right? We don't want to mm-hmm. be, you know, unfair players. But realistically, whenever you're playing nicely with a company and its board, whether you end up acquiring the company or not, whether it's strategic reasons or, or clinical reasons or financial reasons, whatever the reason may be, to at least... Um, end that relationship, be it, you know, in a positive or a negative note, um, with sort of a positive, um, let's say, experience, right? So if a company, God forbid, fails a clinical trial, needs to shut down, not be sort of a cheapskate on, you know, um, compensating the employees for the work they've done, even though, you know, it failed, right? Mm -hmm. And same goes for the situation where we had invested and considered acquiring the company and ended up not doing so due to, you know, change of management, change of strategy, et cetera. Make sure we continue to support the company despite the change, right? So even if it becomes a non-strategic opportunity, we like to continue to support the company to ensure its success. So I think that's sort of the guiding principles that we all have as investors, regardless of the sector um, and how we try to really nurture the relationship with those startups and the entrepreneurs because the reality of it is right most of the entrepreneurs are not single-time entrepreneurs right they would do this Mm -hmm. again and again and again if they fail or if they succeed and if they've had a positive experience with an investor be it jj or anybody else they would come back to that investor with the next idea and i think that's that's key in this industry specifically we have a lot of repeat entrepreneurs and repeat investors is to you know foster those relationships because the next time they have a good idea, they'll turn to you and say, hey, listen, I know how to work with you guys. I know mm-hmm. I, I don't need a learning curve. So um, I think that's really important because no matter how good your sourcing capabilities are, and, and I think they're pretty good for J&J, at the end of the day, the good stuff really comes to you uh, because mm-hmm. they've had a positive experience with you. So I think that's key in managing any of those relationships. Yeah. So um, one more question in relation to this, and then I want to move on to um, the importance of, of partnerships in, in, in innovation. Um, but, but the other question is, you know, with, with startups, and, and it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, when I talk to them, it's, it's like, uh, you know, I always ask them, okay, so, so what's your end game? And a lot of them would be like, well, I'm going to exit in three to five years, or I'm going to exit in five years. There's whatever it is, it's always, well, I'm going to exit. And I, I push them to think about, well, that's fine. And that's okay to have that idea in your head, but you need to go about this as if you're going to commercialize it because, you know, Johnson, what Johnson and Johnson is, is, is thinking about acquiring today could be way different in three years. And it's, that's really hard to keep a, a beat on that. How do you deal with that conversation with startup companies? You know? Uh, yeah. So uh, it may be the benefit of being Israeli and very blunt. Uh, that we <laughs> yeah. really, At least I try to be very direct and asking all the challenging questions, even from the first meeting, recognizing that, you know, depending on the, the stage of the company, they may not have all the answer, which is, you know, perfectly fine, but at least to show some way of thinking now, you know, it really depends on the type of entrepreneur and the type of company. Some of them are very naive and would sort of have a, a draw from the hip type of answer, which you know may not make a lot of sense. But you could definitely tell them you need to put a bit more thinking into that because mm-hmm. realistically, every company should have a plan B, whether it's change as an investor or anybody else, be it a strategic or not, whether... Yeah, if you're bringing in J&J as an investor or any other medtech player, it is definitely a thought that this player will acquire you, right? Or mm-hmm. have some sort of agreement to, to sell your product. So they're using the strategics as commercialization arms. But everyone should have sort of a plan B of what happens if they don't acquire you or what if they decide to not commercialize it because you know they want to see some commercial traction beforehand. So... I always encourage others to have some sort of a commercialization plan, whether it's by themselves, by hiring a team or doing it through distributors in in Asia or Europe or or something like that. 
um, and and to sort of enable, let's say, a much more educated conversation that you know may even educate us at the end of the day, right? We we could certainly have our own biases, you know, having worked in this specific market for so many years and selling the specific amount of products, and we could say, yeah, that doesn't work, but you know, that's that's part of the um, the excitement of of dealing with an external party that they may have a completely different outlook on things. So. Um, I, I always encourage to sort of hear their questions and their answers to our questions to see what their thought is about how to, you know, commercialize or exit for that matter. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, okay. So let's move on to partnerships and, and innovation. So this was something on our first call that, that we, we kind of, we were, we were kind of hashing out, Hey, what do we, what do we want to get at on this podcast? And, and this was something that you had brought up and, and I, I love the theme behind it. So I, I want to hear you expand on it. Um, but to, to lay the, the groundwork here, I guess, you know, um, something, you know, a, a lot of times I think people like to make it like black and white. And, and sometimes it's it's gray, right? And and they think that well, all the innovation happens at startups, and then the big companies just acquire them, and that's how it goes. And it's and and I don't when they say it like that, it seems so negative. And and my thought process is well, I think it's more of a partnership, right? Like it's just a logical stepwise approach. And I think the argument there is, well, we'll do what you're good at, right? I mean, if you're really good at innovating, then yeah, come up with the idea and you can partner with different folks to bring this to, to market and then let other people do what they're good at. And so, so anyways, I, I'm curious on your thoughts around that because. Yeah. So I'm not a big fan of um, very binary values per se, right? I think yeah. it's not very black and white. And as you said, it's not, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't, don't even want to call it gray. It's gray scale, really, in a sense, because there's mm -hmm. such a huge spectrum to anything in that world. And, and it, you know, so many factors play into that, whether it's the entrepreneur or his CEO, or if it's the same person, the existing investors, where the technology came from, if it's like a university that plays a different part, uh, or hospital, you know, any tech transfer type of situation. So, you know, I, I think it's it's very, you know, we, we've gone to the days where a lot of the conversation, even outside of innovation and investing, is very um, divisive, let's put it that way, where there's politics or religion or, or anything of that sort. And I think that's sort of um, creeped into some of the tech discussions that we're having, whether it's Twitter or, or, or anything else. And I don't think really a lot has changed in the world, even in that world in the last 30 to 40 years. So things still are operating very similarly to what they did, you know, 10 to 20 years ago. So I, I am, you know, a big fan of, of partnerships because I, I see this really as a relationship. I think it's, it's like dating in a sense, right? You know, when you dated and, you know, I'm assuming you're already married with kids at this point and you probably yeah. have dated quite some time beforehand and so did I, right? So... You, you test and you try and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And then you find, you know, the love of your life and you get married. And this marriage is something you're doing not for, you know, one to two years. You you understand most of the time this would be a long-term relationship. And with all the um, metaphors of just use, really, you know, if you're looking at a company, you may like it and you like the entrepreneur. And for us, we may not have the right support right right at this moment to invest but we would like to keep it warm. So I can necessarily um, reminisce about some companies and I may not name names now, but that we have made, been made aware of, um, let's say early in my days at J&J, &J, so 2013, 2014, but that was not the right time to invest, but we kept the relationship warm. We got updates on their development, um, whether it was directly from them or from a KOL that they've been uh, close to. And when the, you know, the recent relevant update came along, it could have been two to three years down the road, we said, hey, okay, that's a significant update. That makes it much more valid for us to be interested. And then we invested. Um, did we always acquire those companies? Not necessarily. But um, we, we, we can maybe make a, um, an example of, of Orthospin, uh, which we recently acquired uh, at the end of 2021, where this was an incubator company. And the nature of incubator companies are they are very early, right? Um, they are usually even sometimes an idea on a napkin. Um, and in this specific case, it really was. I have pictures of that napkin uh, in one of my presentations. Um, and, and I recall us seeing this company when it just started in the incubator and we said, 
you know, it's it's not of interest to us now, but keep updating us. And then they brought in the right team and the right people and developed the product significantly to the extent that we said, hey, this is a really nice area for, for disruption in orthopedics. So we, you know, we invested once it graduated from the incubator and then we continued to invest. Um, and then it was clear to us that through that relationship, which we had a very hands-on relationship uh, together with the incubator and the team and our DePuy-Synthes colleagues, that this would be an acquisition target. Um, and, you know, through multiple conversations and these partnerships are both internally within J&J and externally with the company and the other investors, we brought this home. Um, and, and I think that was a real success story, uh, which I could really account to my colleagues, both in OrthoSpin and J&J, having a true partnership and open, mm -hmm. trusting tri partnership where, you know, there are no... Um, fences or, or limits and you know it's really built on trust mm -hmm. yeah it's uh it's 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 really cool to hear something like that and a story like that and um you know one of the other questions i i, I think i have too is 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 while you're i i understand you know um you're you're competing right uh, sometimes with with Medtronic or, or, or Boston Scientific or any of the other large strategics in the space, right? I, I, I understand that. But there also seems like there's maybe some level of even interaction there. And I, I'm, I'm curious on, on what your experience is with that, because at least it's the way it feels, right? I, I, I sat at um, uh, Resi um, in... 2020, right before, well, right on the outburst of COVID, essentially. And um, uh, Nick Morales was there from from J and J, and and so he was sitting on the panel. There was a, a lady from Medtronic, I think it was like Brittany, uh, Boston Scientific, and Olympus, right? And and when they were talking, it like became apparent to me that all four of them must interact outside of just this panel because they were talking about other things they've done together and, and things like that. So I'm curious on like what that's like, is it if from someone who's not in that world, right? Um, you know, is it, is it very competitive or is it competitive and like, Hey, we'll work together on this one. I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. So I think realistically, <laughs> For a company, so let's take an investment target because this is my bread and butter investments, right? Yeah. Um, if you take med devices versus farm, you know, with the huge amount of potential acquirers in farm, I think competition is that much different. And you could most certainly, and even in most companies that are advanced, you will see two big pharmaceutical companies invested in that company. And I think the nature of farm is, you know, you may have a pipeline of assets, right? Whereas in med devices, you would have a single asset company. Right. So it's not unheard of to have two pharma investors, build multinational company pharma investors invested in a single company. And sometimes four, five, six, like Grail was, for example, that yeah. has two <laughs> diagnostics companies and every tech company, et cetera. Right. Um, right. In med devices, it's really a case by case uh, story, because, you know, if you're looking at cardio, you know, it's really dependent on what area of cardio. So, you know, uh, structural heart. You most likely would get companies as investors uh, very early on with strict exclusivity and you won't see a, sec a second investor coming in. Okay. Um, in other areas, which could be sort of more platform related, so anywhere in like robotics or imaging and things like that, I could certainly see a situation where you'll have two or even more players involved as long as they're not stepping on each other in the sense that, you know, one player would take a platform technology to be used in orthopedics the other one would be interested in a more pure general surgery aspect of things that is not sort of conflicting with this this first player and the third player could take a completely different direction um and i think you know in general competition is very healthy for companies right if you have two multinational investors in a company is that not only a sign of validation and belief in that technology of the company but, you know, I, I'm a big believer in competition and a healthy competition and a fair competition. Um, so mm -hmm. if at farm, you know, there are multiple assets in the pipeline, I think in med devices, how that could potentially play out in a healthy way for a company is if you, for example, would have J&J &J and Medtronic invested in a company that none of them, if it's a single asset company, none of them would have rights on that company. So it's a fair mm -hmm. game for all of them, right? If nobody has a specific, unique advantage from a from a terms perspective on the other yeah. 
that's probably the only way it will work because I think that the competition in the med device space is a bit more aggressive than it is in farm. And mm -hmm. um, otherwise you are going to simply, you know, the company is going to be stuck if they have one person, uh, one company, sorry, with a right and the other one doesn't. And yeah, that sort of muddies the water, I think. Um, yeah. But with regards to the original comment about, you know, interacting with each other. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're competitors, but I, I, I strongly believe in, in connections because at the end of the day, we're all people, right? Yeah, we yeah. represent a specific company, but I would be more than happy to meet and speak and sit for coffee and dinner with my colleagues from Intuitive and Metronic and, you know, uh, Striker and get insights. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, yeah, we are all, you know, pursuing commercial and, and, and financial success for our companies. But the end goal is really to impact patients' lives, right? And yeah. the competition at the end breeds good technologies, good solutions. And the more this competition is, uh, is happening, right, we will get better and better solutions out there. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, so it's not 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 like, strategic for a strategic, but in my world, it was when I was at NAMSA, which is a CRO, um, I spent a lot of time getting to know the folks at Proxima, uh, what is LabCorp, but was Covance, Cineos, Icon, uh, Eurofins, all these other CROs and getting to know them. And, and from a you know, because I, I think that was when I was first coming to the industry, right? So I'm a young guy. I'm like, oh, yeah, we're competitive. We're, we got to beat them and everything. And then you start to realize it's like, actually, this is good for the industry as a whole. And then, you know, flash forward to now, it's a really good thing for myself because I get to interact with all of them because I'm not at a CRO. So so anyways, I, I, I really agree with what you're saying there. Um, if I may add, by the way, Dwayne, I think you will see quite a lot, especially in recent years, a lot of folks moving around between Stryker and J&J &J and J&J &J and Medtronic yeah. and bringing good practices that they've learned in that company to other companies, right? So this mm -hmm. cross-pollination of, you know, guidelines and principles that move. So let's say we had a very good strength in, you know, uh, developing employees and a, another company did not. So when that employee moves in from J&J, &J, he's taking all the good things he's learned here and taking it to another company. And that enables the other company to grow even just from a more logistical perspective and not necessarily an innovation perspective, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on that you mentioned, because I came from uh, Covance and, and LabCorp, that was my most recent job uh, before I jumped into this full time. And and that is very much a drug CRO first, right? And, and you hit on a great point that was exhausting to get across to the folks there was that med tech startup companies are there's no pipeline it's one product um and and maybe there's iterations of it or maybe they're going after different indications for use but there's one platform there and and um it's it's not like there's 10 small molecules that they're working on right so um that was very frustrating to get across to the pharma world and and so on this podcast you know most people are are med tech folks so they understand that but if if it is a biotech or a pharma first and listening please edu educate yourself on the differences between pharma and med tech because nothing is more offensive than when yeah. people are just like oh yeah medical device it's the same thing right and it's not so so i appreciate you heading on that nuance um all right i, I want to ask a, a little bit about you know trends you see in the industry and this doesn't have to be hey this is what johnson and johnson's really excited about but but what are you excited about yeah so um like you know very obviously you know we're seeing this both in the funding uh perspective but generally just in terms of deal flow and i i suspect other vcs not even corporates are seeing this we're seeing uh, maybe somewhat um, more aggressive due to COVID, moving more and more to care at home and sort of digital therapeutics and digital care, um, telehealth, telemedicine type of situation. And you know, if, if I would look at this situation maybe five years ago, I would say a lot of the med device companies were probably not mature enough to even consider uh, looking into that space, saying this is sort of a payer insurer healthcare system situation. This none of us need to be involved here. Whereas I think nowadays more and more med device companies are are interested in that space, evident by you know the various acquisitions we've seen 
Intuitive do and, and Medtronic do and, and Stryker do in the last few years, looking to gain more insights into digital therapeutics and, and digital health and sensors and data and whatnot. So I think this is probably the most recent change that I've seen. I can't necessarily say it's for the positive or for the negative, but definitely brings in a new spirit of, of innovation, recognizing that most of the med device players simply don't have those capabilities internally, right, to develop digital products. So they either outsource it or, or acquire companies in that perspective. What um, I could say is, is somewhat frustrating, and that's really on a personal note, not, not representing J&J on that perspective, is there is still... Um, so much more room for disruption and innovation in the pure, you know, surgical world to be done, given the various advances we've had in technology in the last years, whether it's, you know, smaller, better materials, um, you know, cheaper manufacturing, miniaturization that could be leveraged to provide better products or, or better capabilities in the OR that it's sort of losing focus nowadays because, you know, digital is is the the cool new kid on the block and you know you're you're getting like um easier proof of concept because most of these are hardly regulated or lightly regulated versus an implantable or surgical device so a lot of money flows into that um, areas versus the traditional med devices um and um, it's becoming i think more and more difficult to syndicate um medical device investments that are not you know robotics for example which is probably the hottest area nowadays and, and maybe cardio a bit more here um but if you're looking at orthopedics for example right this is an area where there is still so much room for disruption using you know bread and butter tools that you know engineers have been using for the last 10 years in other industries and could potentially be translated into orthopedics um so I, I think these are sort of the trends I'm seeing moving more and more towards digital. I'm not necessarily saying it as a, as a negative thing. I, I'm, from a personal note, uh, seeing very cool stuff um, in the surgical world that could definitely be, um, you know, increased and, and grown and, you know, real, real value provided to uh, both clinicians and patients that we need to still focus on because there's still a lot of challenges to solve in that world that are, you know, mm -hmm open issues. Yeah. Yeah. On that digital health side, you know, what I'm seeing is it's, it's, I don't know if it's bringing in, cause I haven't done the analysis on it, right. But my, my gut tells me that digital health is giving, getting people who maybe were resistant to investing in like actual device hardware, um, a chance to kind of get in without as many risks, right? Because most of these digital health companies, or most of this AI or, or software as a medical device, they, they can go to market um, as a clinical assist device, right? And, and, and then they can collect more clinical data, then they can file a 510K maybe and step it up a notch and step it up a notch, but they're on the market selling already. So it de-risks a lot of that for some of the investor standpoint. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've, I've kind of been seeing the same thing. Um, and almost every one of them are taking the same pathway to market. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I, I, I kind of feel the same way you do. Like it's, it's just neutral. I, I yeah. mean, it's, 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 it's a trade-off though, because, you know, as yeah. you mentioned, it does bring more money into the industry from non-healthcare investors, right? You're seeing pure right. tech investors investing mm -hmm. in those spaces, um, and sort of leveraging the other healthcare investors knowledge and saying, okay, you guys handle the regulatory side and we'll bring in, you know, the tech side expertise. Yeah. Uh, which is yeah. a positive, but, you know, at the end of the day, this sort of movement towards that sort of takes the thunder from other areas in a sense, which um, right. could be, you know, it could have implications down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's some advice, too, that I've I've been uh, giving is just a word of caution is as these new investors come into the space and they start to maybe get out of digital health and okay, maybe they, Hey, this is a pretty cool medical device product. I can get on board with this. I just caution the entrepreneurs to be just a, a little careful about taking in bad money because, or make sure you at least educate them exactly on, well, Hey, I understand this investment, you know, we were able to commercialize quicker, but, but just so you know, this is a realistic roadmap of how long it's going to take and what you can expect. And that way you, you know, you're really, you're preventing yeah. bad money. <laughs> yeah, on, on, on that point, by the way, one, one thing yeah. I always tell entrepreneurs, regardless of J&J is an investor or not, um, you need 
diversity on your board, not just from a gender, ethnicity, inclusion perspective, but really from an experience and, and sort of expertise perspective, right? Mm -hmm. If you start as a pure software solution, sure, it will be probably easy to, to get like tech investors, but in terms of getting into the healthcare industry, they would not have a lot of insight. So you need a healthcare investor to help you navigate that area, mm -hmm. bring you the KOLs, bring you the relevant people, because a tech investor would not necessarily be the right person to do that himself. Yeah. Um, what are some other just overall pieces of advice uh, that you might give to, you know, the startup companies who are listening now? It doesn't have to be, you know, hey, this is how to engage J&J, because I think we covered that extremely well at the very beginning. Um, and, and that was helpful for me, even someone who kind of knows that. I, I really wasn't aware of the four buckets, but, but just in general, right? If I'm an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm getting started or I'm halfway in, I mean, what are some of the things that you're like, Hey, this, this is a few, few of my biggest pieces of advice. Yeah. So I think with, with competition, as we mentioned specifically on the med device side, um, I wouldn't be afraid of, um, engaging early with the med deck players. Um, Okay. And, and for two reasons. One, I think you can gain quite a lot of insights just in general on what the best practices are from even a clinical regulatory development perspective by engaging with those companies. And I would be very upfront about it, saying, you know, we recognize we're early and it may not be a good fit for us, but we would like to have a conversation with you to give you sort of a rundown of what we're doing um, and, and get your feedback on what you think is good or not good or what we should focus our, our efforts on. And I think you'll find that most of the companies are happily willing to do that. So for two reasons, one, I think building the ecosystem is really important. And, you know, at the end of the day, those companies will end up being acquired by one of us. So I think mm -hmm. that's one part. The other part is, I think, uh, at least my philosophy is, and I think that's been ingrained in me from, from day one in J&J or generally in life. I'd like to know about something that is early rather than not know about it when it's too late, right? And if that company makes sure to, you know, make me aware of that. And they continue to update me year one, year two, year three, even though it's too early, that shows me that they want to collaborate and they want to partner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through trust and openness, you know, you build a relationship like anything else in life. Um, but I think that that is something I would encourage a lot of, you know, first time entrepreneurs to sort of do the research a bit about the, the you know, the multinational they're talking to, sure, but be very open and, and trusting and say, we know there's a lot of unknowns. We know that, you know, there's still a lot of question marks to be uh, addressed, but yeah. I would love your input on this. I'd like to see what you have in mind, how you think this could succeed. And that would potentially enable a more successful partnership or relationship down the road. Okay. So, so let me ask you this, you know, for some of these startups, generally who they're going to maybe exit to a lot of times is the, the product they're competing with. Right. So, so how do you deal with that? Right. Like, let's say you're making a product that you are directly trying to take market share from, from Medtronic, but Medtronic is also your most logical exit. How do you deal with those discussions early where maybe you're, you're just about to start to sell this thing? Uh, you know, is that, is that, is that where, is that one of those things where it's like, Hey, don't worry, they're not going to, they don't feel threatened by you, you know, you should, you should still talk to them or, or how do you navigate yeah. that? So I, I, I can't speak for, for other companies, but I, I think sort of as a rule, maybe not in a tech space, but in the medical devices space, most of the large players would be afraid maybe of any God forbid contamination uh, through external IP. So at least for, for J and J we have very good practices in terms of ensuring that whoever is involved in that discussion outside of JGDC, of course, is on a clean team and, you know, they're not directly involved in the development of a competing product. Right. Got um, okay. the uniqueness we have at JGDC is we are effectively firewalled uh, on both ways. Right. So if we sit on the board of a company, we serve at the behest of the company, we have fiduciary duties as directors to those companies. We sit on boards as directors, right? So while we are J&J employees, our obligation is to the company that we're invested in. So we are very strict in not sharing any board confidential materials internally outside of JJDC. Um, whatever is being shared internally within J&J, we do not share externally unless given, you know, very explicit permission to do so both from the operating company outside or from the invested company inside. So it has to be okay. very, um, you know, clean, um, legally and, you know, um, 
morally in a sense. Yeah. Um, and, and I always sort of as a best practice encourage if the company wants to share something with the operating company, that they do so directly without us as directors being involved. If they want us on the call, we're happy to be on the call. But mm -hmm. for them to share this directly in, instead of, you know, having run the risk of us sharing something that we weren't aware of was not shareable. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's, that's really helpful. Um, I think there's a lot of startups that worry about, you know, something like that. And, and, and it's good to know that those things exist. I, I think I kind of figured that just based off my experience at LabCorp because LabCorp has a venture arm yep. as well. And I, you know, realized how separate those two entities were. So uh, it's super helpful. Um, Tamir, any, anything else in, in, in closing that you, you wanted to say or talk about that I haven't asked about? Well, no, I, I maybe start with sort of a personal comment. Thanks for welcoming me here. Um, you know, I've um, recognizing Israel and, and California are very different in nature, albeit very similar. Um, you know, I, I, I like all the welcome I got both from you and, and the ecosystem. And um, if anybody finds this interesting, I would more than encourage them to connect on LinkedIn and reach out um, in the stages of creating my network here almost effectively from scratch. So, um, you know, cool. not not easy to do in the days of COVID. So uh, please feel free. I'm I'm very uh, nice and I don't bite. So uh, <laughs> happy awesome. to meet anybody. Yeah, H hang on for one minute. We'll chat offline here. But but just for for anyone um, listening, I'll, I'll, I'll if you look up or down an inch, depending on the platform you're listening to the podcast on, T Tamir's uh, uh, LinkedIn URL will be in there. So you can just click on that. I'll take you right there and connect with him. I'll have J and J Innovations uh, website on there and, and that kind of thing. So um, awesome. Well, Tamir, I really appreciate it. Hang on for one second and uh, thanks again. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.